The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We'll be looking at the book of Jonah today. Now this one might be familiar to you. If you grew up in church, everybody remembers the story of the big fish and Jonah in the belly of the whale. If you didn't grow up in church, this may be new to you, but this is one of my favorite uh, stories in the Bible. And when I use the word story, I don't mean that it's fiction. I don't mean that it's false. I mean, this is one of the great uh, stories that we have written down for us of how God gets a hold of His prophet and is determined to demonstrate His mercy to a people who are undeserving. And so, the book of Jonah really asks this simple question, can you run from God? I think we know the answer to that is no. We can try. Psalm 139, if I go to the farthest parts of the earth, still you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. He's everywhere and we can't run from Him, yet so often we try to, don't we? We pretend that He doesn't exist. We get away from His people because we think in getting away from His people, we'll get away from Him. But He knows how to find us. He knows how to track us down. And you can never outrun the long arm of the Lord. You can't. And this is what we see in the story. We see this is true for Jonah. And we see this is true for Nineveh. You can't run from God. And some of you here this morning might be trying to run from God. And you've shown up this morning because it's expected of you. Or someone has, has pled for you to come, but you don't really want to be here. You don't want to be with God's people because you know that this is where God's presence dwells is in the midst of His people, and so I don't really want to be near God. God knows how to track you down. And what I love about this story, though, is when He tracks us down, He does it with discipline, yes, but He does it in mercy and kindness. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance, Paul says in Romans. When we realize He doesn't treat us as we deserve, like we just sang, I once was lost in darkest night, thought I knew the way. I, I thought I knew what was right in my life and which way to go. But I was running a hellbound race, indifferent to Jesus and the cross and the things of God. But the Father looked upon my helpless state what a thought. He saw me in my helplessness and my weakness and my rebellion, and He had mercy and compassion. And I think this message this morning is of utmost importance, especially considering this election cycle. There is an amount of hatred and rage and, and, and sort of self-centered righteousness that is just being propagated in our American culture because of this election cycle. And it doesn't matter what side you're on. It doesn't matter who you're voting for. This is what the politicians are going after. They want you to be angry. They want you to be upset. And they want you to be self-righteous. And I watch the, the presidential debates and they are so undignified. And throwing insults and, and outrage at each other. Being the opposite of what we think of when we think of presidential. And our culture is loving it. You see, and, and for Jonah, 
he would have been the exact same way when you started talking about Nineveh. You see, Jonah the prophet, he's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. He lived during the, the conquest of Jeroboam II. So he lived uh, in the 8th century B.C. And he prophesied, and he was very successful as a prophet in his early ministry. He prophesied that God would destroy his enemies and Jeroboam conquered the nations around him and expanded Israel's borders. And Jonah would have been one of those prophets that would have thought, man, I'm having a really successful ministry. The people of God are growing. God is blessing us. We see the fruitfulness of it. And then God calls him to go preach to Nineveh. The enemy the ones who had been at war with Israel, the ones who had been enslaving His people, the ones who had been raping their women and taking them into bondage. And Jonah says, you want me to go to that country and tell them who you are? No way. Pick another prophet. Micah, he's over there. Pick him. And Jonah, what's amazing, at the end of this book, it ends very abruptly. Almost as if we would want a conclusion if we were an editor at a modern-day publishing house. We would want a conclusion to it. What did you learn, Jonah? What's the moral? Well, I think Jonah's intending for his people to see the same thing he's come to learn. That the servant of the Lord must have the same heart as the Lord God. God loves to save sinners, and from the beginning, God intended for the nation of Israel to be His chosen people for the purpose of being a light to the nations around them. Not just their conquerors, but the one who brought them true knowledge of God. The Israelites, however, began to take pride in being God's chosen people, and they began to look on all their neighbors with scorn. And they began to look at their neighbors as people with, that were lesser. They were Gentiles, after all. There only existed two people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. Those who were Jews and those who were less. That's all there was. And so God sends Jonah to Nineveh to teach the prophet this lesson. And so we see here, in Jonah, really it breaks up into two parts of this story. In the first part, Jonah's commissioned, but then he runs from God. In fact, he runs as far from God as he can. Nineveh's to the east. He goes to a port to hire a ship to go to Spain in the west, on the other side of the Mediterranean, as far as he can go in the known world, away from where God wants him to be. Well, then God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah and bring him back to the land and vomit him up on the land. And then Act 2 starts, and Jonah is commissioned again to go to Nineveh, and this time he obeys... But he's still not quite happy, we see at the end of the book. And we'll get there in a moment. But let's read chapter 1 together. I want you to see this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, that's in Spain, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. 
But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Wow. It's almost unbelievable. When you read this, you think this has got to be fiction. This has got to be fantastical. And, and the commentators have, have shown how people have survived in the belly of fish and whales for length of time in these accounts that have happened. But I think we can take this as true because the Word of God says it's true. And even if it wasn't a natural way for Jonah to live in the belly of a fish, it could have been done supernaturally. I have no problem with that. In fact, it says God appointed the fish. Verse 17. It's a strong word. In fact, throughout this, you see God's sovereignty. He's planning every step of the path to bring Jonah back to where he ought to be. Jonah can't run from God. In fact, we're going to see He's the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. How are you going to run from Him? He's the God who made the sea where Jonah was and the dry land where the sailors wanted to be. He made it all. Jonah's commissioned in verses 1 to 3, and he runs from the face of God. Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Literally, the face of God. He wanted to get away from God. I'm going to go all the way to Spain. I'm going to go as far west as I can get in the known world. And so God raises up a storm at sea. He's the God who will not let go. He has more patience than you. He has more endurance than you. And if you want to run from Him, He will not let go. So God appoints calamity to get Jonah's attention. You ever had that happen in your life? Maybe you didn't know it at the time, but you look back and you say, I know God appointed that calamity in my life. And it was to get my attention and to punish me and discipline me for my rebellion and running from Him. I got times like that in my life. Where I can look back and say, God appointed that calamity. 
He appointed it. It wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just fate. It wasn't just luck. It was God's sovereign appointment that I run into that calamity. Because He loves me and He will not let go. He does this with Jonah. Now, if God were like me, He would write people off as useless. He'd give them a number of chances, and then that's it. You're done. I'm done with you. I have no further use for you. But God took His choice of Jonah so seriously that He would actually sink a ship rather than allow Jonah to go his own way. And to emphasize the severity, verse 4, when it says the ship threatened to break up, it actually personifies the ship in the Hebrew. So it's, it's this idea that the ship says it was actually thinking it was going to be destroyed. Reminds me of that old Looney Tunes when Sylvester the cat gets those panicked eyes and just goes, Mother, right before the train hits him or the bricks hit him or whatever hits him, the, the beam, the eye beam of structural steel as it's running around as he's trying to get Tweety Bird. But Jonah is oblivious to all of this and he had gone down into the belly of the ship, the hold of the ship, and it says he was in a deep sleep. And he was in such a deep sleep that, that he wasn't awakened until the ship captain came and booted him and said, what are you doing? How is it you're sleeping? Everybody else is praying. And these are sailors who had lived their life on the sea. And they're praying because they know the end is coming and when he says, perhaps God will take notice of us so that we do not perish. Get up and cry out to your God. It echoes this command in verse 2 to arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah should have heard the echo of God's voice in that command to arise and get up and pray and cry out to God. But Jonah's still being stubborn. He doesn't want these people to know that it's his fault, so he doesn't say anything at first. And so secondly, God exposes Jonah's sin. First, he appoints a calamity, this storm where the ship is about to be destroyed, and then he exposes Jonah's sin. Have you ever had that happen? We try to keep our sin quiet. We try to keep it hidden. Even when we're repentant, we really aren't that excited to let everybody know. But God has a way, if He wants to get a hold of you, He will expose your sin. And He'll expose it to the people you don't want to know. And He does it because He loves you, not just to shame you, but He wants to break you of it. He wants to get you out of that pattern of sinning and be broken from it in true repentance so you would go and sin no more. This is what Jesus did in the Gospels. He exposed people's sin all the time. But he said, I came for the sick. It's not the healthy who need a physician, it's the sick. And I came for the sick. And he delivered them. And he can deliver you. And if you're hiding sin in your heart and sin in your life and you don't want to be exposed, be sure God loves you enough, he will expose it to the public world to get you to repent of it. To bring you to repentance. God exposes Jonah's sin, verses 7 to 10 of, of chapter 1. The lot falls to Jonah. Now, I don't think casting of lots is a wise way to make decisions today, but God in his sovereignty allowed that lot to fall on Jonah. And they start asking questions Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your occupation? What do you do for work? 
Well, I'm actually a prophet of God, and I'm running from Him. And the God that I'm running from is the God, he says in verse 9, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then they were exceedingly afraid. You know why? They knew Jonah's God. They were sailors that had gone into Joppa a time or two, and they knew exactly who Yahweh was. He was the God who (coughs) brought the plagues on Egypt to free his people. He's the God who parted the Red Sea. He's the God who protected His children in the wilderness for 40 years. He's the God who provided manna. He's the God who parted the Jordan River. He's the God who leveled the walls of Jericho. He's the God who caused the sun to stand still at Gibeon. This is the God that Jonah's running from? And we're in the middle of the sea that he created? Of course, they were exceedingly frightened. This is not a weak God pursuing Jonah, the God of heaven, the God over all. And so what God does in His mercy in verses 11 to 16, He brings Jonah to the end of himself. He brings him to the end of himself, to where Jonah finally says, I'm willing to die. Cast me over into the depths of the sea. I'm at the end of myself. I have nowhere else to look. I know my life is gone. And they even cry out and say, don't let us perish on account of this man's life. Don't put innocent blood on us. They're praying to God saying, please, God, don't hold us accountable. This is something that you have made clear. And the prophet is saying, do this and we'll be saved. And here's another great irony in the story. Jonah didn't want to see pagans saved. And yet in the midst of his stubborn rebellion, I believe these sailors came to true repentance and saving faith in God. So God was fulfilling his ministry to save Gentiles, even as Jonah was being rebellious. Here, it says they feared the Lord exceedingly in verse 16. I think this is going beyond what any normal fear of, 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 the, of the gods around them would be to where they feared Him truly exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to the Lord. I, I think Jonah's using strong language here to say that they came to saving faith in Yahweh the God of heaven who made the seas and the dry land. You see, God knows how to bring us to the end of ourselves. Your arms are too short to box with God. You'll never win. It won't happen. And what we see with Jonah here also is that pride makes a man stupid. He thought he could run from God. He thought he could flee. He thought he could hide even when God showed up in the storm and the sailors knew he thought he could hide. And God exposes his sin. And God appoints calamity. And God brings him to the end of himself. Why? Not because God wants to destroy him. Not at all. No, it's because God wants to use him. God brings him to the end of himself and appoints calamity and exposes his sin not to ruin him, but to make him more useful. I hope that brings you great comfort. Because when we get our sin exposed, when we run into great trials, when we are brought to the end where we have nowhere else to look but up to God, sometimes we think this is the end. I might as well be cast into the sea. God has no more use for me. I might as well die and go to heaven. God says, no, my child, I love you so much that now I'm going to actually use you. 
and I'm going to show you that my strength is made perfect in weakness. So what did Paul say? I will greatly rejoice in my weaknesses. I'll boast in my weaknesses. I'm nothing. I'm a sinner. There's no good that resides in me. I am what I am because of the grace of God, not because of how great I am. And the longer I live on this earth, the more I find that is true. There's nothing good that dwells in me. It is all by grace. On that day when I stand before the Lord and He rewards me for the things I've done, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say it's all because of what you did through me and in me, not because of who I am. And all the praise is going to go back to Him. I would beg and plead with you to repent of these hidden sins. Those of you that are hiding them. Stop running from God and turn to Him. The reason He's bringing this upon you is because He loves you. We're going to see in the next chapter. We're going to see what His name is. This is how He works. Come to Him. Come to Him. Chapter 2. The great fish. (laughs) Praising God in odd places. (laughs) Uh, What is the proper posture in prayer? I don't know that God prefers a proper posture. Jonah was in the belly of a fish. He didn't know probably if he was upside down or downside up. And I don't know if he was kneeling or laying or balled up in a tangled heap. But he prayed to God and God heard him. Jonah prayed to the Lord, chapter 2. Prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me and all your waves and billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Wow. First thing we see here is God's grace. Jonah was not abandoned by God. The miracle here is not that there is a fish large enough to swallow Jonah. The miracle is that God appointed the fish to be at the right place at the right time, ready to swallow Jonah, and he was kept alive for three days and three nights before he was barfed up on the land. This was like a resurrection from the dead. This is why Jonah prays, because of God's grace. So Jonah praises God. We see this in verses 1 to 9. (coughs) Those of you who are in trouble in your life specifically because you have disobeyed God, take hope from this passage. God answers Jonah's prayer and gives him another chance. God is the God of second and third and 10,000 chances. 
If you're still alive and breathing, God is not done with you. He wants you to come to repentance. He wants you to bow the knee to Jesus and give him your life and follow him all of your days. That's what he desires. And he wants to use you to tell others about his son. I don't know why for sure it is, but it seems like in the Christian life that when distress and trouble come, they come in batches. They come in waves. They don't get spaced out so we can handle them one at a time. That's how I would like it. Okay, I have a trial, God. Thank you. I'm going to just praise you in the midst of it, and I'm going to handle this one. And could you just wait until this one's over before you send another one? No, they seem to come over wave upon wave, one atop another. And I think the reason is, is because then we see no way out in our own strength and we have to cry out to God. We have to depend upon Him, the God who raises the dead. The God who knows how to deliver and save. That's why Jonah says in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. The only one that's going to save him out of the belly of this fish is the Lord. And in the midst of this, Jonah's heart is assured of God's mercy and kindness. His character. You brought my life up out of the pit, O Lord. Verse 6, he says. You are the one who has steadfast love, has said, verse 8. Jonah was humbled by grace. Brought about three tremendous changes in his thinking in this prayer. First, he begins to think with some compassion on the terrible plight of the pagans, the idolaters. He says in verse 8, those who cling to their worthless idols forfeit the grace, the covenant love that could be theirs. That's what he says. Those, those people, those sailors on the ship and those in Nineveh, they keep clinging to their worthless idols and in doing so, they're forsaking the Hesed, the covenant love of God that could be theirs. Second, he had a renewed commitment to the Lord. What I vowed, I will pay. You called me to be a prophet, God. I vowed I would be your voice, your spokesperson, and so I will do it. And thirdly, he had a fresh view of the sovereign grace of God. Salvation is from the Lord and the Lord alone. It's from the Lord. This morning, some of you are running from God. Stop it. Just stop. Run to Him. Humble yourself under His mighty hand. And you know what Scripture says? He'll exalt you at due time. So that's Act 1. And Act 2, it's like a reset. It's like a redo. It's like a uh, second life in a video game here. Maybe more than that. He says again, chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and instead of fleeing to Tarshish, he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. 
and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from the fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow. This mission to Nineveh, verses 1 to 4. Jonah obeys this time. And the thing that's encouraging to me about this is there's been times in my life where God, I know He's disciplined me because I've been in disobedience to what He wanted me to do. And then I decided, okay, I get the lesson. You disciplined me, Lord. I'm going to do what you want me to do. But then as I begin to do it, I really don't want to do it. That's what happens here. Jonah's in the belly of the fish. He really is repentant. He really does say salvation belongs to the Lord. What I vowed I will pay. I'll do what I, you said, Lord. And we see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he's obedient and he goes. And he preaches 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now some people make a lot of this sentence saying, well, he wasn't being very compassionate. He was giving the bare minimum. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I imagine he said more than just that. But that was the summary of what he was saying was God's message that they were going to be destroyed by God in 40 days. And what we see in chapter 4 when we get to it is that Jonah, though, he really doesn't want to do this. He really doesn't have... He's beginning to have some compassion on those who cling to worthless idols and forfeit the covenant love of God. But he doesn't really want Nineveh to be those that he saves. Maybe he kind of liked the sailors. Those were the kind of pagans and idol worshipers that he could have some compassion on. But Nineveh? The ones who did violence and evil and wickedness to Israel, he wanted God to nuke them, wipe them out. In fact, he's going to sit over the city and watch for 40 days to see if God would wipe them out. And when God doesn't wipe them out, he gets angry, livid, so angry, the angriest he is in the whole book, and he's angry at God. And he says, God, take my life. Kill me now. Kill me now. I'm done. (laughs) I don't like your compassion, God. Wow. See, and this is what the message was to Nineveh. You need to fear the gracious and compassionate God. Nineveh had heard of Yahweh. They'd had relationship good and bad with Israel for years. They knew who Yahweh was, but they were running from God just like Jonah. They weren't shaking their fist at God saying, I'm not going to do what you say. They were simply saying, the God of Israel has no place in my life. We're going to worship and serve our own gods. See, and some of you here this morning, that might be how you feel. I'm not angry at God. I'm not like Jonah. I'm not running to the other end of the world trying to hide from him. I just don't think much about him. He has no place in my life. Be sure you're running from God just as much as Jonah was. And he knows how to get in your business and move into your neighborhood. He knows how to send somebody into your life who proclaims the gospel message that says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So, once again, if I was God, I'd have had about enough of Jonah. Jonah ran from God. He'd rather die than serve God. He told the sailors to throw him overboard. God graciously saved him from a fish. And if I was God, I'd said, Jonah, go home. But no, God says a second time, go 
and preach my message. And Jonah obeyed. And the response of Nineveh to the warning is amazingly true repentance. This is the greatest revival that we know of in human history, at least numbers-wise. They estimate 140,000 people lived in the city of Nineveh. And they repented. Conviction of sin. Jonah was a sign of the anger and wrath of God, but also a sign that the sinner could be spared. Imagine what he looked like when he walked through the city. He had been in the belly for three days and three nights. Imagine what those stomach acids did to his skin. He didn't have any Nivea or any uh, shea butter or cocoa butter to put on that. He must have been bleached. His hair, I just can't imagine the look of what stomach acid would do to you for three days and three nights. And they see Him as a sign of the anger and wrath of God, but they also see Him as a sign that a sinner can be spared. After all, He was spared. Then there was sorrow for sin, verse 5. They all declare a fast. They put on sackcloth, even on the animals. It is nationwide. It is comprehensive. And there's repentance. Verse 8, they turned from their evil ways and the violence in their hands, and then they had hope in God. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Verse 9. That's exactly what God did. Verse 10, God relents and shows mercy. This doesn't mean God changed His mind or that He's not always the same. This just is simply God's mobility in human history. He said, 40 days and I'm going to destroy Him. But there was also this condition, if they repent, I will relent. And I will show them mercy. And that's the reason he sent Jonah in the first place. He wanted them to repent. He knew he was going to relent because he's sovereign and he knows the end from the beginning. (laughs) Chapter 4. The misery of Jonah and the mercy of God. God more merciful than his prophet. That's what we see here in chapter 4. Let me just read it to you quickly. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Wow. The the Hebrew here is so strong. He was livid. He was red. He was foaming at the mouth. He was cursing and yelling probably and throwing things and having a temper tantrum. He was not happy. And he prayed to the Lord. And he said, Oh Lord... Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're gracious. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord says to him, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself. There he sat under it in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, the only time he's happy in the entire book. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, 
I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So Jonah, chapter 4 here, first thing he does, he questions God's character. That's always a very foolish thing to do, but sometimes we do that, don't we? We look at the trials in our life, we look at the calamity, and we question the character of God. God, are you truly who you say you are? If you were a good God, you wouldn't allow this to happen. And I don't just mean in small things. I mean the temptation is, is in great things as well. You would not have allowed me to be abused, God, as a child, if you were a good God. You wouldn't allow my brother-in-law to get cancer, God, if you were a good God. You wouldn't allow my wife or my husband to leave me, God, if you were a good God. You wouldn't allow my children to die, God, if you were a good God. This is what Jonah was doing. He was questioning the character of God. Essentially saying, you are not a good God. And what he was saying is he was saying, God, if you were a good God, you would destroy my enemies. If you were a good God, you would wipe out Nineveh because of what they've done to your people. And isn't that tempting to pray? God, if you were a good God, you would wipe out Islamic terrorists for what they've done to your people. How they murder Christians and kill them. But God says, no, don't question my character. Trust me. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, there's a difference between questioning the works of God and judging the character of God. There's a difference. The saints under the throne who in the tribulation in the book of Revelation are waiting for Jesus to return and wipe out their enemies says, How long, O Lord? How long? That's a question of when the Lord is going to do it. It's not an accusation against His character. Jonah was accusing the character of God. God's actions were evil to Jonah. It was greatly displeasing to him, and it led him into both depression on the one hand and anger on the other. And if you've ever been depressed, you know those go hand in hand. Depressed about life and angry about life. And Jonah was put into this downward spiral. And he says, just take my life. It's better that I would die than live like this. Jonah prays in anger. He understood God's intention flowed from his character. Chapter 4, verse 2. He knew exactly who God claimed to be. But he didn't like it. He said, that's why I ran to Tarshish. Because I knew you, God. I knew you were going to forgive him. Because you're the gracious and compassionate one. Abounding in loving kindness. Slow to anger. You're the one who relents from calamity. This is who you are, God. This is a quote, by the way, from Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when God caused His glory, His name, to pass by Moses when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. This is a revelation of who God is, a central expression of His character. 
It's also quoted in Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Joel 2, 13, and probably most important for Jonah, this is what was sang in a part of temple worship in Psalm 86, 15, Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 145, 8. Jonah would have sang this as one of the verses in the songs of worship in the temple. He knew exactly who God was. And he didn't like it. And in his anger and in his depression, he would rather die, verse 3, than see God respond this way. And so God questions Jonah's anger. He says, first, do you have a reason, a right, a good reason to be angry? And this, I think, is a gentle questioning. It's the reason I read it the way I did. I don't think God is getting in his face. I mean, that's what I might do to a child is get in their face. Do you have a right to be angry? You don't have a right to anything. You're a child. You've never done that, I'm sure. No, I think this is a gentle question. Trying to bring Jonah to his senses and to think this through. Do you have a good reason to be angry? It shows Jonah didn't know God as well as he thought he did. Like the older son in Christ's parable who sulked while the father celebrated and felt cheated by the prodigal's return. Jonah was angry that Nineveh repented. And so what God does in his response is he appoints a vine. Even though Jonah was unrighteously angry at him, God pours out more of his mercy and his love. He appoints a vine to shade Jonah, to give him comfort and relief. It reminds me of Romans 12, 20 and 21. Do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the first time I said Jonah was happy in the whole story. And it says he was exceedingly happy. Why? He's happy because God was finally doing something for Jonah. You see, it reveals we don't know God as well as we think we do if the only time we're happy is when God gives us good things. We don't understand Him quite like we think we do. So God then appoints a worm in verse 7. This had two effects. The worm kills the plant. It exposes Jonah to the heat of the sun and the scorching east wind, which God, by the way, also appointed. You see God's sovereignty in all of this. And it provoked Jonah to another temper tantrum. And so God questions him again in verse 9. <laughs> by the way, verse 9, <laughs> he says... Um, do you, well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yeah. I have a right to be angry about this plant. It's the only good thing you gave me. I have a right to be angry about it. You took it away. You took away your good gift you gave me. And I'm angry enough to die. Talk about irrationality. Now, God is exposing the sheer madness of Jonah's obsession. You know why? Jonah didn't have to sit out in the scorching heat. No one made him sit out there. You know why he was out there? He built this booth and he sat there for, so he preached, it says, for three days he walked through the city. We don't know how much longer he stayed in the city, but he knew 40 minus 3 is 37. He may have sat out there as long as 37 days waiting for God to nuke Nineveh. And when God didn't destroy Nineveh, then he has a temper tantrum, and then God raises up this plant. So Jonah sat out in the scorching heat for, at, who knows, 30 days, a month, or more. 
He didn't have to sit out there. But he was so determined and so angry at God that he was going to prove himself I don't know what. Don't we get that way? We get so stubborn, so mule-headed and stubborn. You know what God told Paul? Kicking against the goads. Why are you kicking against the goads? You know what it does? All it does is cut up your feet. That's all it does. When those animals kick against the goads, all it does is cut their feet. It does them no good. And then he says, this is the clincher in verses 10 and 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? God is showing Jonah what free grace is all about in verse 10. The vine was a free gift. But Jonah was acting as if God owed him the vine, the plant. God freely gave the plant, and when the plant dies, Jonah says, God, you owe me another plant. You took my plant away. You owe me another plant. And I'm so angry about it, I'm angry enough to die. How do you react when gifts are given and removed? You see, when we're angry with God, we end up loving His gifts all the more. You know why? We make idols out of them. They become what we worship rather than God. And so when they're taken away, we become exceedingly angry at God for taking away our idols. We worship our vine rather than our God. The vine may wither, the career prospects tail off, the charming friendship is broken off, the golden-haired little one breaks your heart in rebellious youth. We must look beyond the gifts themselves to the grace of the one who gives. This is what God is showing Jonah, what free grace is all about. And secondly, God is showing Jonah his love for the lost in verse 11. First, he has a concern for the perishing world. Should I not pity Nineveh? This plant is not dying and going to hell, Jonah. If you had concern for this plant which grew up in a day and perished, should I not pity Nineveh? These people that are headed to an eternity separated from me in judgment. Secondly, Commitment to evangelism. Israel was to be a light to the nations, to show forth who God is. And instead of being a light, they became prejudiced and hated the nations. And so God is revealing to His prophet, this was my intention from the beginning. Third, confidence in God's purpose to save Listen to what God is saying. Jonah gets upset with God again because God causes a plant to be raised up and kills it the next day. And God questions Jonah's anger. God tells Jonah, in essence, you had compassion over a plant that you did not cultivate and grow and died. How can I not have compassion on a city that I planted, a people that I created that I caused to grow, who are made in my image? Do you have a right to be angry? See, some of you are angry this morning. You're angry at your boss. You're angry at your spouse. You're angry at Muslims. You're angry at the government. And if I told you to share the gospel with them, you'd say, share the gospel? I want them to go to hell. I want God's justice to fall on them. I don't want to share the gospel with them. This was Jonah's attitude towards Nineveh. This was Israel's attitude toward the Gentiles. And this is often the church's attitude toward the culture. 
But this is not God's attitude. God loves to save sinners. He's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And if anyone repents and submits to Christ as their king, God will relent concerning the calamity He's promised to bring on every sinner. This is this message of Jonah. And this, this, this event in Jonah's life was meant to be a sign. Uh, John read it this morning out of Matthew 16. That Jesus said, I'm only going to give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. Jesus, on two occasions, in fact, told his hearers that there would be a sign, but it would be much different than they expected. They wanted a miracle. He said, I'm, not, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna show you a sign. What is a sign? A sign points to something. Our Calvary church sign points to the church down the road. It isn't the church, but it's clear and unmistakable that if you look at it, you'll get to the church building. Perhaps. It's kind of faded now and worn out. Uh, did it get replaced recently? I don't know. There have been lots of signs in the Bible. Manna from heaven. Joshua causing the sun to stand still. Samuel causing thunder and hail in the time of harvest. Elijah bring down fire from heaven. The sign was something different than the miracles. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? It's explained in the gospel in a couple of different ways. First, there's a connection between Jonah and Christ. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's experience was a prophetic picture and acted out prophecy of what was going to happen to the incarnate Son of God. Jonah went the way of death. So did Christ. Jonah remained three days in the grip of death. So did Christ. Jonah returned to the land of the living on the third day. So did Christ. Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, and so Christ was assigned to His own and all generations as one risen from the dead. He is the author of eternal salvation for all who will believe. So Jonah was three days in the great fish, and he was there because of God's righteous anger against his sin. It was penalty for his wrongdoing. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. One out of one human beings die. Because we're all a rebel against God. Jonah was dramatic proof of the wrath of God against rebellion. Jonah was as good as dead in the belly of the fish. As far as he knew, he was going to die. Now Christ actually did die to pay the sin debt. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. But He didn't stay dead, did He? Just as Jonah was spit up on the land three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and Jonah was assigned to them. But see, Jesus was greater than Jonah. There's a contrast. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus says to the city, He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at this generation at the judgment and they're going to condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here now. One greater than Jonah. Jesus is a different prophet. However amazing the resurrection of Jonah was out of the belly of the fish, it pales in comparison to the resurrection of the Son of God. And there's a different response. For those of you who do not believe the Gospel, you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I wish He would be right here for, to prove it. But you remember what He told in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Luke 16, 
If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the significance. The Ninevites uh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were so hard-hearted, so blind as to reject Jesus completely, even after He'd been risen from the dead. You see, we don't need another sign this morning, a voice from heaven, a writing in the sky. We need to believe the message. We need to believe the message. And so there's a call for all people in Luke 11.30 Jesus said, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. A sign. The Queen of Sheba, the Ninevites, were Gentiles. They listened, as it were, heard who God is and what He'd done in their day. And now Jesus is God in the flesh. And so the question is not what are you going to do with the sign of Jonah, but what are you going to do with the sign of the Son of Man? What are you going to do with Jesus who died and rose again on the third day? Will you, like Nineveh, repent and cast yourself on the mercy of God? Or will you, like the Pharisees, reject Him and despise Him and go your own way? What is incredible? John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says the glory that Moses saw when he heard the name, the gracious and compassionate one, the glory that filled the temple when the psalmist worshipped, it's the glory that's seen in the only begotten Son of God. He's the one from whom Jonah fled. He's the one who had compassion on Nineveh. He's the one full of hesed, steadfast love. The one full of charis, grace, and truth. The one who reveals the Father and who He really is. That's why John says right before that, He came to His own things, and those who were His own people did not receive Him. But as many as did receive Him, He gave the right, the privilege, to be called children of God even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but of God. This is the message this morning. Is, is Are you going to keep trying to run from God? Can you run from God? No, you cannot. And God might be tracking you down this morning. And He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn to Him and give Him your life. Stop living your own life your own way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I give you the right to be called a child of God. Father, thank you this morning for your word. What what an incredible story, this life of Jonah. This scene from the life of Jonah as he goes and preaches to a people that he hates. Father, would you give us compassion and love like You have. May may we know You as You really are. Not as the God of our own imagining. Not as the, the, the One who merely gives us good gifts, but the One who is sovereign over all, who is gracious and compassionate. Father, would You give us Your heart for the lost. May we love our enemies. May we love our enemies, Father. I, it's easy to say, but it is so hard to do. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank You for this clear picture in the Old Testament of Christ. The sign of Jonah pictured in the resurrection of Christ.
May we go from here today with great encouragement that you are the God of second and third chances and tenth chances and hundredth chances, that you are the God who, because you love us, will send calamity and expose our sin and bring us to the end of ourselves. But you do it not to destroy us. You do it to prepare us for future usefulness. Encourage my brothers and my sisters, I pray in Jesus' name. To this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.